of God's word before Rick comes with the message. We don't stand out of empty tradition. We believe these are the words of God, and we do so out of reverence. Reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful word that you've given to us from the Gospel of John. We thank you that we can come to a gospel such as this and meet Jesus again for the very first time. As we start this passage, we look forward to seeing in this great book the works of Jesus as he's come down to us as our Savior. So may we keep our hearts and minds open and attentive to your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're beginning this morning a look at the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John, it's called the Gospel of John. We call it John, the book of John. If you look at the beginning of your Bible, however, you'll see at the top it says the Gospel according to John. And that reminds us that this Gospel is only one of four Gospels. There's really only one true Gospel story. It's a story about Jesus. There are four Gospels, four different witnesses to that very same story. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are our four Gospels. Now two of them, Matthew and John, are Gospels written by eyewitnesses. These are men who traveled with Jesus, who lived with him, who walked with him, who heard him teach. And so John is one of those eyewitnesses we're going to hear from in this study. The other two, Mark, a friend of Peter, wrote under the authority of Peter and with Peter's uh, input, uh, the story that Peter had. And then Luke, of course, tells us in his gospel, as he writes to Theophilus, that he researched this thing. So Luke interviewed those who were eyewitnesses when he penned his gospel. So we have these four gospels, all of which tell us this great story of who Jesus was and what he did. Then you come to this gospel and you read it, and you see how truly profound it is. When you come to this gospel, you see its profundity in the stories it tells, but At the same time, it's simplicity in the way it does it. And so, for example, if there's a new believer that comes along and says, I'd like to start reading the Bible, should I start in Leviticus? We say, no, don't start in Leviticus. Start in the Gospel of John. Why? Leviticus is equally true, and it has great information we need to know, but John is written for a new believer. It's written in such a way that even a child can understand it. And so, in your bulletin handout this morning, I gave you a quote that cannot be sourced in history. It's sometimes ascribed to Martin Luther or to uh, Augustine even before that. But it says basically that the gospel of John is such that an infant could wade into it and an elephant could swim. And the idea there is, is that we can understand the gospel in the book of John. At the same time, this gospel has been used by great theologians to explore the great truths of the Christian faith. And so when you come to John, you see in it, So much great theology, and even the first 24 words today 
will explain to us the great ideas of the Trinity and who Jesus was in God. And so it's a very powerful book. The Gospel of John has great stories for us that, that will move us if we are attentive to it. It's also a book that tells us about what it means to believe. It gives us information about not only what we need to know, theology, but also it shows us what we need to be doing, what we might call doxology or worship. So there's both the head part, the knowledge part, then there's the heart part, the living part. And you have to have both together. I know there's a lot of churches that really emphasize the emotional side, the active side, that sort of side of it. And a lot of people can be emotionally moved by a great service, by great music. Uh, Last night even I was watching old video of the People's Temple, Jim Jones. He was a very engaging speaker. And the worship, and I'm not criticizing anybody here, but the people of that People's Temple were so moved, they were so joyous and jubilant. The problem was, is they didn't have the truth. They didn't have the correct part. Worship is in some sense kind of like uh, climbing a ladder. It's like, belief is like climbing a ladder. But you don't just climb the ladder. You have to make sure the ladder is leaning on the right wall. And what those people were doing is engaging enthusiastically in a lie. But what we're doing in the Gospel of John is seeing how we can engage enthusiastically in the truth. Who is the truth? Who is Christ as the truth? Now, there is great profundity in this uh, book, as we'll see as we get into it. Uh, The great Reformed theologian Francis Turretin once said that in Christian religion, there are two doctrines most difficult. Now, Turretin is smarter than all of us, and so for him, there's only two problems. For the rest of us, there's many more. But for Turretin, he said, there's two that are most uh, significant. One, how is it that the Trinity can be three persons in one God? How do we understand the Trinity? And the second is the nature of the incarnation. How do we unite the divinity, the divine nature of Jesus with his human nature in one person in Christ? Those two great doctrines are at the front of what John does. He doesn't waste any time with a long introduction and great stories. He begins right off the bat. In the beginning was the word. And so that's John's point. He gets right to the beginning of it and gets right after it. So when we come to the gospel of John, we're going to see all of these great truths in it. What is John's message? Let's think first about who John was. John, as we will see, was a son of Zebedee. His mother's name was Salome. He had a brother named James. James and John go together. They were, when they were young, very aggressive, very undisciplined. Uh, Salome, the mother, asked if Jesus if her two sons could sit at the left and right hand with you in the kingdom. And so they were kind of aggressive that way. But John would be tempered in his faith as he spent time with Jesus. Now, Salome is an interesting character. We will see her briefly in this gospel. Uh, but uh, later in the gospel, we'll see that at the time of the, uh, the crucifixion on the cross... There was at the cross, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, the uh, wife of Clopas, and then Mary's sister. When you go over to the gospel of Mark, Mark says at the cross, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and Salome. So if the Salome of Mark is also the sister of Mary in John, it could be that Salome and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are sisters. You see, that would make John and James related to Jesus by, uh, by birth here. So Salome, as we'll see in this gospel, the mother of James, 
Zebedee. But then we've got John, and, and we'll see John, but he never mentions his name. John, only five times toward the end of the gospel do we see it uh, referenced as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the John of this gospel. So John writes, he doesn't put his name into it. The name John will show up a number of times, but always of John the Baptist. And so as John writes this gospel, he does so for a reason. Now, if you turn over and look at John 20 and verse 31, uh, John 20 verses 30 and 31, and do that just so you see this. Real quickly, why does John write this gospel? Well, he doesn't tell us until the end, but he does tell us. John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he tells us right off the top why he's writing this gospel. Now when we come to this gospel, we see a number of stories being told to us. He writes it for a reason. But what you don't find in this gospel are so many of the stories that you know and love. You won't find any story in the gospel of John about the birth of Jesus. You won't find any story about his baptism, although it's alluded to with about three words. You don't find any story about the temptation. You don't find any story about the transfiguration. In fact, you don't find many stories at all about Jesus' travels. The other gospels... Uh, tell us about Jesus ministering in Galilee and other regions and slowly making his way towards Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, John tells nearly only stories that occur in and around Jerusalem in Judea. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 12 and after, Jesus never leaves Jerusalem again. So John gives us those stories only in that region. Although John does tell us, of course, about the crucifixion, the resurrection, He doesn't tell us about the Garden of Gethsemane, and he doesn't tell us about the Ascension. So John leaves out so many of these deep historical details that we come to know so well. But why does he do that? Well, that's going to be the important question. That's how we understand what John is really up to. John leaves out those stories because he's telling the same story with a different purpose. That's so that you may believe. And the stories that John gives us will be powerful stories, big stories, And you know the stories well. But uh, as we see these stories, we'll see that there is within them and through them a deep theological thread that John is writing about. He is writing to make a theological point. His is not simply a narrative telling us about particular historical events like we're reading a newspaper. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic is uh, two Greek words, syn and optic, which means to see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke sees the story of Jesus in much the same way. And you can even see parallels and even identical wording in some of the parallel passages in them. 90% of John is unique to John. 90% of what we read in this gospel is not found in any other gospel. And so what we're seeing here is brand new stories never told before. Now when John wrote, I imagine now one day he's very old in his uh, late 80s. And these other three Gospels are circulating, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I suppose some young disciple of John came and said, you know, these other Gospels are out there. And John, you've told us so many great stories about Jesus. Why don't you write them down for us? And John thought, I should do that. And so when he wrote his Gospel, he chose not to tell us what we already knew, but to tell us new and different stories to make a theological point. Now, some have argued that the Gospel of John was late. 
And the, the high Christology in it, the way he talks about Christ, is, is later in the game. And so that shows that the church took time to develop this high Christology. Uh, and Bart Ehrman wrote a book recently, The Triumph of Christianity, which talks about the growth of it and the change of its theological doctrine. But of course, you can see even in Paul in Galatians, written 30 or 40 years earlier, Paul talking about this very same high Christology. So what John is simply doing is telling the church what they know. He's telling about who Christ was. And so we see this very powerful story. Now, when you see why he's writing, we can see a couple of things. First, the historical aspect to it. John writes giving us history. He's telling us about true events that actually happened, but he's selecting those events to tell us a theological point. In this gospel, he will talk about the Jews. He will use the Greek word iodion 50 times, which is used only 10 times total in the other gospels. He is specifically talking about the Jews in Jerusalem and the conflicts that the Christians now had with the Jews. Now, you might remember in the year AD 70, Jerusalem was crushed by the Romans after the Jewish rebellion, and many Jews were pushed out of Israel altogether. And the Christians of Jerusalem would have been the same way. So it sounds like John probably took the Christian believers, maybe first moved to Syria uh, west uh, to uh, Ephesus and in Western Asia Minor. And so when John later writes the book of Revelation, he writes to the seven churches. And if you followed those seven churches on a map, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, they form a nice little postal route circle, uh, a nice uh, convenient route that even uh, Amazon Prime would uh, uh, endorse. And so he could easily deliver these letters. So John is writing to fellow believers in these regions. He writes not only to tell them historical information, but he writes, as he says in that passage we just read, evangelistically. He's writing so that you may believe, so that you may believe. And so the first, the second purpose we see is it is evangelistic. He's writing so that unbelievers can clearly see what the gospel is. And so he tells them about the stories of Jesus so that they may believe. The, the word uh, uh, truth is, is used in this gospel 25 times, 20 in other places. So John uses truth 45 uh, times total. He uses the word uh, love 80 times. Love is, that's why he's known as the, the apostle of truth, the apostle of love, and also as the apostle of belief. 98 times in John's gospel alone, he uses the word believe. Five times on average in every chapter, he uses the verb believe, that you may believe. That's why he's writing. Here's an interesting aside. He never uses the noun belief, which is strange. And there's a reason for it. We'll talk about another time. But this is a, 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 the, that you may believe. That's the reason he's writing is that you may believe. So he's writing evangelistically. Now he does that, not only that unbelievers may become believers, but also so that believers may have their belief sustained so that you may abide in Christ. Let me read two verses to you. John writes in chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And then in chapter 15, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. John is writing 
not so that new believers can be had, but so that old believers can be sustained. He's writing to us. When he writes this gospel, we know that historically he was probably first thinking about the, uh, the churches that he was a pastor of. And so he writes pastorally to them about this. He writes evangelistically, but as a pastor, he's writing to his church members and these people in these churches that he's witnessed to that they may continue to believe. That's so important. And it's so important for each of us every day, every week when we gather together to rekindle our passion for belief. If you go back into the 17, 1800s, you will see there a time when uh, belief was, was strong in England, for example. In fact, George Whitfield, the great uh, English evangelist, came to America and preached in America. And the stories told about Benjamin Franklin, we know, would go to hear Whitfield preach. And, and Whitfield had a very powerful voice. He had a powerful message, but his voice could reach 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people in an open field. He didn't need one of these things hanging off his ear with a battery pack in his pocket. He could preach and be heard for miles away. So Franklin goes and hears him. And some, uh, some one day, some friend of Franklin says, why do you go hear Whitfield preach? You don't believe anything he says. And Franklin said, no, I don't, but he does. There was something powerful about the witness of Whitfield in the depth of his belief that even moved Ben Franklin. And in our own lives, when we have that same passion for belief and truth, it's moving in the face of other people that we believe. And that's why John is writing, so that we too may be believers who show that in the world. And so he writes pastorally as well. He writes in two other purposes, apologetically. He's using this as a defense of who Jesus was. If you look at Isaiah 52 and 53, you see there this promise of a coming Messiah. John says that's Jesus. That's him who we're talking about. And so he writes apologetically. He's writing to explain to those who are believers to not, not be deceived by those in the midst who are drawing you away. And so if you have time in the next few weeks, read the epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as well. And you will see John at this very same time writing to these small churches saying, don't let those who are liars come into your midst and draw you away. There were then, as there are today, a lot of false doctrines, a lot of cults, a lot of ways of drawing people away. John is writing so that we maintain our true faith and stay with it, that we continue to believe and not be drawn away. So he's writing apologetically. Finally, he's writing liturgically. He's writing for the church and its worship. When you read the Gospel of John, you see in there references uh, to Jesus as the good shepherd. You see him there as the light of the world. You see these titles being ascribed to Jesus that are only supposed to be ascribed to God himself. And so John is writing so that his own churches, including us as well today, can go through this gospel and in worship hear the message that John has, the message that he's bringing to us of what Jesus had to say. That's why John's writing. So if each week you keep in mind these general purposes, these five reasons he writes, you will see in these passages so much coming out about what the gospel is. That's why John is writing. The theological stream we see in it can be illustrated by the way he puts stories next to each other. So, for example, uh, in John chapter 2, as we'll see in a few weeks, there's the, uh, uh, the, the miracle of the wine, the water being turned into wine at Cana. Why does John tell us that story? 
I'm not going to tell you now. That'll be about three weeks from now. But I'll tell you this. It's not just a story about a little miracle at a wedding feast. There is behind it and underneath it a great theological, historical event being described explaining who Jesus was. John is writing to people who understand so much of the Old Testament that they can, as hearers, have that in their mind as John's speaking to them and they can understand the great message he's given. Uh, Think about John 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Jesus says, you must be born again. And uh, Nicodemus said, how can I be born when I am old? Can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? Now, a lot of times people say, well, see, Nicodemus didn't understand. He's kind of a, a fool here, idiot. He, didn't, he thought that you had to be born physically a second time. Nicodemus didn't think that at all. As a Jew, he understood this figurative language. Nicodemus was saying, how can I give up so much that I've gained in my Jewish religion as a, as a Sadducee, as a teacher, as a ruler of the Jews? How can I walk away from all of that and follow you? So Nicodemus doesn't believe. But chapter 4 has a Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritan woman with five husbands, she is on the margins of society in every way. She's an outcast, despised by Jews in every way. But she believes. She hears the water of life. So John puts chapter 3 and chapter 4 next to each other to tell us there are those who have all the advantages, those who have all the religion, those who've been taught so much who don't believe There are those on the margins who had nothing who do believe. It's about belief. And it's not thinking that because I'm such a good person, I'm better than most morally in my life. I do good things. Therefore, I must be a Christian. John is saying true belief is different. And it doesn't matter about your heritage or where you came from or who you are. This is an evangelistic message he's giving throughout the book. And so as we go through it, keep comparing last week's sermon, last week's story with next week's, and you will see there's a bigger overarching theological emphasis being drawn out. So as we come to this passage, again, we see in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you all know those words uh, in English. They're very powerful words. There's even in English sort of a cadence that comes with them. In the beginning was the word. And listen to the staircase way he writes. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. There is a poetry to what John is doing here. Now, I thought this morning we might do something that I don't think we've ever done before. And that is, I want to allow you to hear these words as John wrote them in the original Greek. And so in a moment, I will recite these to you in the original Greek. So if you came to church this morning just saying, I wish I could hear these in Greek, today's your lucky day. (laughs) But after that, I'm going to have you recite them with me, kind of like we did at your wedding, you know, or we did a piece at a time. So listen to these words. Now, let me explain to you what they are first. In the beginning, arche, say it at the top of your voice, arche, in the beginning, like archaeology, archetype in the beginning that's what archaeology is archaeologist in the beginning was the word logos now you've heard the word logos right logos uh it's from the word we get logic uh uh, we get the word all of the ologies uh biology anthropology theology which leads us to the the third word theos 
or on theos, which is God, right? So we have God. Theology is the study of God. And so these are the three big words we see in here. Now, there's another little word, ain, which is the imperfect tense form of the word amy, which is I am. Ain is he was. In the beginning was the word. Now, it looks like such a small and significant word, but let me tell you how powerful this thought is in John. As he writes, he will use the word amy a number of times. Ego ami, uh, I am. You remember the seven I am statements of Jesus? I am the bread of life. I am uh, the, the door. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am uh, the, uh, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. These seven I am statements of Jesus hearken back to Exodus 3, 14, where God told Moses, I am that I am. And when the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek because the Jews lost the Hebrew language and became Greek speakers, those are the same words used in Exodus 3.14. Ego ami, I am that I am. And so when John gives us these seven I am statements of Jesus, he is telling you Jesus is claiming to be God himself. I am is powerful. And the word was here is this word of existence, ain. He was in the beginning with God. That's what this passage is about. So let me give you these words in Greek. Listen to it. I think you can follow it. If you know the English, you can sort of follow the rhythm. But in Greek, the way it's written is almost semi-poetic. It's a very powerful statement. When John wrote these and they were first read, they would have had a powerful impact on those who heard them. So John begins to write, In the beginning was the word. And ain halagas. Kai halagas ain prastante on. Kai theos ain halagas. Hutas ain. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So now let me have you do it with me. I'll give you a couple of words, and you follow along, all right? Guidritis? All right. In the beginning was the word. Halagas. Halagas ain. Prastantheon. Ha theos ain. Ha lagos. Hutas ain. Enarche. Prastantheon. Okay, you did that in Greek. Are you proud of yourselves? That's good. And I, I know somewhere John is listening saying, they did it again. They did it right. That's how it's pronounced. And so that. I don't know if John understands English. We know God does, but maybe John heard it in Greek for the first time from us. But uh, those are powerful words in the Greek. When you read them, when you see them, he's really saying something. And when the first hearers of this passage would have heard that, they would have been greatly moved by it. What John is saying here is powerful. Now, he describes the word here. In the beginning was the word. Why does he say the word? There's two ideas about word, the word, halagos, we need to know. The first idea is, uh, reaches back into the Old Testament understanding where we see so many times the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came. And so the idea of the word of the Lord is the idea that God's message from the Old Testament came to the Jews. And so if you were a Jewish person at the time, you would have known this idea 
The Hebrew word davar was changed to lagos when the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And so to say halagos is to say the word. They would have known this Hebrew idea that the word of God comes. To say that you're the word is to say that you are a messenger of God himself. You are bringing God's word. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea. And most of the commentaries who write about what John meant by halagos here will tell us that that's what John had in mind. But there's a second view that I think is equally true uh, in this sense. In the, at the time John wrote, there was prevalent in the day much uh, Greek philosophy that reaches back uh, from Plato and comes down to a, a Stoic named Zeno and others after him in which they use the word logos, reason, as the, the animating principle of life. Logos to the Greek mind was in some sense that animating life principle that made the physical life happen. And so they, they, between their gods, the gods they had, and between us, there was this logos that animates us. So if you were Greek and read these words from John, that's what you would have heard. And when you actually read secular, non-Christian uh, philosophy writers, uh, including the, the, the Catholic uh, Frederick Copleston and, and Richard Tarnas and others, they only see the Greek idea in John. They see this idea, this logos of Greek philosophy. And I think it's probably the case that you will see in this word what you know. And so to a Jew hearing this word logos, they would say he's talking about Jesus as the messenger of God. Because clearly Jesus does bring God's message. But to a Greek, to those who are not believers, they would have heard John say, the logos that you believed in is some animating principle. This logos is Jesus himself. Life is found in Jesus himself. And so John would be telling those people that this Lagos is Christ, is who he is. He is the one that your religions think there's some an, uh, life animating principle. It's really Jesus himself. And within the hearts of everybody, uh, there is some idea that there has to be something more than this physical life that we have, this, this physical life. There has to be something more. John is saying that there is, and that is Christ himself. And so we come to this passage and we see, in the beginning was the word. Now, he uses the word beginning, unqualified. So just in the beginning, before time, before time and space, before all of that was the word. The word was already there. Jesus became a man at a point in time, but as the second person of the Trinity, as the son, he preexisted time. And so the first observation we can make is that of preexistence. In the beginning was the word. Jesus, as a second person of the Trinity, preexisted physical reality. And we see this in the fact that he creates. We'll talk about that in a moment. But as a creator, he has to preexist all that is created. And so we see this idea of Jesus as the preexistent one. Uh, in Jude 25, we studied this just a few months ago. Jude writes, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Jude himself recognized that the understanding of Christ is to understand him as the one who preexisted all reality. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. We see the second phrase, and the word was with God as explaining the coexistence of Jesus. So the first 
phrase is the preexistence of the second person. The second phrase is the coexistent. And the word was with God. Jesus was with God. Uh, the, uh, Martin Luther talked about this particular phrase and said this combats the, the uh, error of what's called Sabellianism. Sabellius uh, was uh, a, an early church heretic, let's say, who taught that there's really only one unified God that manifests, manifests himself in three different ways. Sometimes he's seen as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as spirit. Now, we have in our modern day, uh, modern day Sabellianism with the oneness Pentecostals, uh, which is uh, considered a, heretic, a heresy. But uh, Luther looks at this and says, it shows us that not only is there a God, Jesus is God, but he's also different from God because he is prostetantheon. He's with God. He's with God. So we see Jesus as being with God in Colossians 2.9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is deity himself, but he's also separate from God. And then we come to the third phrase, and the word was God. This gets to his essential deity. The word was God. And Luther said, while the, the second phrase distinguishes Sabellianism, this third phrase, the word was God, combats the error of Arianism. And that's the idea that Jesus was really just a man who was born physically and had some sort of divine spirit uh, placed upon him, but he's not God himself. And so the modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses will, uh, uh, are advocates of this doctrine of, of Arianism, this heresy. And so this third phrase combats that doctrine of Arianism. Now, the, the, the Greek wording here has become uh, debated with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Let me just say, and I can't get into all of this right now, if you, if you want to know why the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong and the way they translate it, and they translate it as, uh, and the word was a god. Uh, I can explain that to you. It takes about 10 minutes to go through the Greek grammar and how it all works. But to say this, that it is undisputable that the only proper way to translate this, even unbelieving Greek scholars would say this, it has to be, and the word was God. And it's a, it's a, it's a portrayal of his divinity. It's not equating God and the Father and Jesus as the same person as, as the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Arians do. It's to say that that essential quality of divinity, which is Godness, is in Jesus himself. He is God himself. And so in this very first verse, we see this look at who Jesus is. He was in the beginning with God. He was with God. He was God himself. And all of this goes to show us who Jesus is. So you can see already we've done uh, 17 Greek words. And you see already John has laid out so powerfully who Jesus was. Now, everything else in the gospel is basically a footnote to that point. Everything he says is going to be explaining those three points we just mentioned. Everything else is going to be supporting that claim. So John lets us know why we're here. Now, notice in verses 2 and 3, we see first Jesus not only as the eternal word in verse 1, but in verses 2 and 3, he's also the powerful creator. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him uh, was not anything made that was made. So you see first that positive confession, all things were made through him, and then John, to be clear, states it in the negative, and without him, not anything was made that was made. So Jesus is not made. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. Jesus 
is the agent of creation. Nothing was made without him. And so by staying it, stating it that way, John is saying that whatever physical reality there is, whether it's dark matter, dark energy, or, or physical matter you see today, whatever it is, all of that, take it all together, all of that came after Jesus because he's the creator of it. He's the agent through whom God works. And so we see in the, 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 the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, as all three actively engaged in creation. Uh, the uh, theologian Jürgen Moltmann talks about the perichoresis of God. Perichoresis uh, means the uh, dancing together as such, choreographies, the uh, choreasis. And so the dancing around. And the idea there is, is that God in three persons is always operating as a consistent unity, never in conflict one person with another, each always supporting the other, all three acting in everything that happens. And so all three members of the Trinity are active in creation, in redemption, and in the final age. All three members are active together. And, and it's like this, this beautiful portrayal, this perichoresis of how God is operating. And so who's the creator? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, we see Jesus also had an active role in creation. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul writes, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul makes it plain, for God the Father and the Son, they are through whom there are all things and for whom all things exist. And if you go to Genesis 1, you see it's the Spirit that's moving over the uh, unformed creation that's giving it life. And so God is actively involved in all aspects of this. So we see Jesus as the powerful creator. Third, we see him as the giver of life. Notice in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, there are in Greek three words that are used to translate the word life. There's the word suke, from which we get psychology. So suke in the Gospel of John is used ten times. There's a second word, bios, bios, which we get the word biology, biography. Biology, biography, the, the bios word is a word which speaks about the uh, physical reality. That's what we get stuck in every day. The bios is what too many people think about. How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to make happiness for my physical life? How can I avoid pain? That's the bios of life. The zoe of life is a third word. The zoe of life, that's used 38 times. Jesus, John, in this gospel, never talks about the bios of life, the physical reality of life. He only talks about this zoe of life. And when you see the words life, eternal life, eternal life, it's always zoe. The word zoe in Greek has this idea of uh, the fullness of life. And uh, let me uh, read uh, to you from uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Now, I had the book, Mere Christianity. I'm reading from a, a printout copy of it because my, lit, my dog ate Mere Christianity two months ago. So I, I've got to get another copy. But here we have C.S. Lewis. Listen to Lewis talk about these uh, concepts. He writes in Mere Christianity, in reality, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which comes to us through nature, and which, like everything else in nature, is always tending to run down and decay. 
so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air, water, food, etc. This is bios. The spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe, is zoe. Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place or a statue and a man. A man who changed from having bios bios, uh, to having zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is all about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues. And there is a rumor going around that some of us are someday going to come to life. What Lewis is talking about is there's this physical reality that we struggle with, but there's a life that Jesus is promising. That's the eternal life, the zoe of life. And that's where it's all at. That's what really matters. Now, too many times we get stuck in this bios of life. And again, uh, there are philosophies, there are uh, ways of politics, there's ways of trying to deal with this that the, the secular world, the unsaved person is always trying to find a way of, of having a fulfilled, meaningful life. But if you only live at the level of, of bios, bios, you can only then have uh, physical pre- uh, pleasures as that satisfying moment of life. That's all there is for you. But if instead you see Zoe as the true life, as John says, as Jesus says, then you see Zoe is where true life is had. It's had in this eternal life with God, the fullness of life. And another point, I think it's Athanasius who said that only that which has been assumed can be saved. And by that he meant that only in the sense that God became a man can God then redeem humanity. And so what happens is Jesus, who's Zoe in fullness, takes on the life, the bios of life, to become a man with us in some sense like a statue, take on this physical nature, so that in his crucifixion, resurrection, he can be for us that Zoe that leads us back. And so as, as uh, uh, Lewis says, there's a rumor going around that one day those who are statues will be made alive again. That's what the message of John is all about, so that you may have eternal life. And so we see in this great passage, uh, John lays out for us that Jesus is the giver of life. So he's first the eternal word. He's the powerful creator. He's the giver of life. He's uh, number four, the triumphant light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think, just meditate on those words for a moment. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Those two ideas. The the first idea, the light shines in the darkness, can be the theme of the first uh, 12 chapters of John. John's going to tell us about Jesus, who is the light, who's walking as the light, who's witnessing, testifying, healing, showing who he is. He is the light. And then he says, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the message of chapter 13 to 21. That there is a darkness. There is a darkness of evil. There's a darkness of sin. The darkness of Satan. All of that is out there. And it's trying to overcome the light who is Jesus. Now, the word uh, overcome 
katalambano, is a word which means to, to pounce upon, to overcome, and also carries the idea of understand. And so the NIV, if you have that, you're seeing it says, does not understand it. And maybe both ideas are there. And so to understand is to comprehend. To defeat is to comprehensively defeat. The same idea is carried in this word. But I think the idea of the darkness, sin, evil, Satan, does not overcome, does not overpower, does not defeat who is the light, is the critical thought John is giving us. The story of John is going to be this light that comes into the world that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot defeat it. The Gospel of John is about the light succeeding. Uh, Someone once said that the theme of Revelation is, in the end, Jesus wins. And that's John's last words to all of us, Jesus wins. And it's the idea he's getting across to us here. And so we see this idea of the darkness not being able to defeat it. Uh, uh, some years ago, my family and I were driving to Kentucky, and we went to Mammoth Cave. Has anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave? A number of you. And you know, you, you take to Mammoth Cave, and there's a number of tours you can do depending on how agile and healthy you are. But uh, for all of us, it can take you down at least so deep into the earth and shut off the lights, and there's a darkness there that is almost incomprehensible. It's a darkness you don't really experience in any other place of life. Your bedroom house can never get as dark as Mammoth Cave is. And so when you're deep in that cave, it is true darkness and frightening. But then when you light a match, the darkness cannot overcome that match. That match, that little light shines in that darkness. And that's why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the life is in the light. The life that is in Jesus is in this light. And so Jesus comes to us as that light. He tells us in chapter 12, verse 16, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. In chapter 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. When the Gospel of John was interpreted and read for many years, uh, in the past centuries, it was seen to be uh, not Jewish at all. It was seen to have all of these Greek ideas in it. With the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what uh, we saw there, as we talked about uh, some months ago, is that the uh, community at Qumran were obsessed, like Jews of the day, with the light and the darkness. They saw this as the battleground between God and, 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 and evil. Light and darkness. And so in the Jewish mind, there was always this idea of light and darkness. That's the thinking they had. And when Jesus comes as the light of the world, he's saying that I am the one who is promised from God in the Old Testament. I am the one come here now to fulfill that. And so we see God uh, in Jesus. Turn over to... Uh, Chapter 8, verse 24, John 8, 24. And as you do, let me read Colossians 1, 13. Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul, again, talks about this Jesus who takes us, people who were in the domain of darkness and have now been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's where we were. Sin had overcome us, but Jesus has redeemed us. And that's the message of this gospel. So now that you have uh, John 8, 24, let me ask you to stand and we'll read this. 
and then be dismissed. But listen to these words of John. And I'm going to ask you to read them out loud with me as we dismiss. John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Our Father, we thank you for this great word that you've given to us, that Jesus is the light, that he is the life, that he's the good shepherd, that he's the vine that sustains us. And as we come to this message today, we worship Jesus as the one sent from God to redeem us, and we thank you for that. We look forward to this series as we know we will hear again and again how you have come to redeem us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray.